welcome back to Gamcast. I'm still having problems uh, how of and questions of how I should start this podcast. I have Tales from the Crypt where I say, what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. But again, this isn't Tales from the Crypt. This is Gamcast where we sit down with people in the energy industry, particularly oil and gas industry, and talk about the merging of, of the Bitcoin mining world in the oil and gas world. And today, I'm sitting down with the host of Talk Energy, Max Gagliardi. How you doing, Max? Hey, Marty. Doing good. Thanks for having me on. Max G, thank you for coming on. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, particularly because you're one of the few people in the oil and gas industry that seems to have innately got what we're doing at GAM and is excited about it and has been uh, throwing good ideas our way about how to integrate ourselves in the oil and gas industry. And um, it's it's rare out there in the field. Bitcoin sort of this uh, opaque new technology to a lot. It's not really opaque, though. It's open source. It's wide open. Opaque's the wrong word, I guess. Obscure. Uh, and confusing new monetary technology for the digital age and that many people are having trouble grasping. So having spoke spoken with you, myself, and then other members of our team, Tom, particularly, about ways that, that the oil and gas industry can, can utilize Bitcoin mining, we figured we got to get you on the GAMcast and uh, get a better understanding of why you have such an innate understanding of what's going on and and your background so before we get into like the bitcoin stuff i guess we should learn a little bit about you for our listeners in the bitcoin world who don't know much about your background and your experience in the industry yeah sure uh and again thanks for having me on uh this is good stuff and it's funny because i think that learning about my background a little bit and what i do will help you kind of get why uh the light came on fairly quickly and then I'll tell you some of the some of the things as you as you were explaining them and as the GAM guys were explaining them, uh, as well as when I was like doing the research about this, it just kind of snowballed very quickly for me. And so my background is, you know, really the simplest way to put it, because it's kind of complicated. I think you'll get it if I explain it to you and probably maybe the listeners if they're in oil and gas. But the simplest way to put it is, you know, helping producers get the most value for their energy. And so back at the start of my career, I worked for Chesapeake Energy. Uh, for a number of years and was in what we call the commercial group. So basically the liaison between the driller and all the infrastructure in between and then the end markets. And so everything from negotiating the midstream contracts to securing the best markets for the sale of the product, uh, whether that be gas, oil, NGLs, and really just coordinating all that stuff. And so there's a lot there that goes into that. Um, and it was just one of those things that was a niche in this industry and something that I feel like even within oil and gas, it's not well understood because a lot of companies, if you're a smaller company uh, or mid-sized company, even you may not have like that expertise on staff. You've got like an engineer or maybe a finance guy who is historically, you know, negotiated your purchase and sale contracts for the product. And if you're a bigger company, you probably have a group like similar to what we had at Chesapeake that is solely focused on that part of the business. And I got really lucky because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I got into energy, that was something that I just got kind of fell into, fell into doing. And it's one of those things where when I first started learning about midstream and the marketing side, it just was like, this is fun. Like I, I liked it. There was a human element to it. Cause you had to negotiate agreements with people to get them to want to build the infrastructure you needed and to want to buy your product there was a technical aspect to it 
around learning about all these different things, right? You're sitting in your first meeting and it's like, you're hearing about MMBTUs and compressor stations and all these things. And considering yourself, if you consider yourself somebody that can like learn things quickly or that you had kind of this, had kind of this lofty idea that, Oh, I'll be able to figure this stuff out. And remember sitting in some of the first meetings and just being like, I don't, I don't anything of what, what these people are talking about just totally foreign language. And so that excited me. And I just got lucky, I think, to be put into a position in a role that I felt like played well to my skills and something that I uh, just felt was like the coolest niche within the energy industry. And I love that niche. And so moving forward, I have basically created multiple companies kind of based around that niche. And so we started our first company in 2014. Uh, called Ancova Energy. And I partnered with a guy named Mark Edge, who was my vice president at the time at Chesapeake. And he's 30 years my senior. And so Mark and I, I worked for him at Chesapeake and kind of like learned the ropes from him and ha was fortunate at the time where I was at to just drink from a fire hose and learn all about, you know, everything gas sales and just kind of this commercial aspect of the business. He'd been a guy that had been in it for 30 plus now, years, now close to 40 years. And we started out working for producers, the small and mid-sized guys doing consulting and just helping them get more value for their product. And uh, that turned into a physical marketing business. We started buying and selling natural gas. And uh, really just, there was a lot of lack of transparency on that side of the marketplace. And then, uh, and we saw a niche there. And then from that, we moved into raised some money back in 2018 to look at pursuing uh, infrastructure projects as well. So that's been Ancova. We've got three companies. We've got uh, Ancova Energy, Ancova Energy Marketing, and then Ancova Midstream. And I've uh, been doing it for coming up on six and a half, uh, almost seven years now. It's kind of wild. And have just kind of carved ourselves out as this niche of helping producers get the most value for their product. And so knowing that background, can you see now maybe why listening to the stuff that you were saying, Marty, would make the gears in my head start turning when I'm hearing this guy on a Bitcoin podcast talk about how the most value that you could ever get uh, for natural gas is not through these things that I've spent my entire life crafting and honing my skills to learn this very niche part of the business and consider myself widely an expert around what it means to get the most value for your product. And then I'm like listening to your podcast, pacing around in my house at like one in the morning being like this, just like just the implications of like the different stuff you guys are talking about and trying to incorporate that into my already uh, view of how I know the world. And so it has been a pretty interesting rabbit hole, uh, as you like to call it, to go down. And it's exciting stuff. I mean, you're pretty far down. You have the laser eyes uh, yeah. on your profile picture yeah, behind us sure. right now. Definitely. It's fun, too. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down, as you can see with the laser eyes. It's good stuff. It is. It is. It's, uh, it's an important one to go down, you would argue, too. I would argue. I won't speak for everybody else on my team, but I'm pretty confident they'd say the same thing. I mean, it is... We're at a pivotal point in human history where we we have two paths we can go down from a freedom in the digital age perspective. We can have systems like the social credit system in China exported to the rest of the world, or we can fight for freedom in the digital age by by adopting a peer-to-peer -peer distributed currency, uh, namely Bitcoin. And when you get further down the rabbit hole, uh, the the second and third order effects that the Bitcoin network has on everything that we come into contact with in our lives uh, seems to be pretty profound. And the energy sector being one of them, one of the memes in Bitcoin is Bitcoin fixes this. And people think 
Bitcoiners are crazy for saying this, but I mean, it, it really does fix a lot of things and there's nothing more direct than, than how it fixes some of the inefficiencies in the oil and gas market, particularly being as efficient as possible with the, the minerals that are pulled out of the ground uh, and getting as much value as possible um, as you can due to that. Yeah, I just lost your video. I think I can still hear you though. Yeah. Um, Hold on, let me plug it back in. Um, with that being said, I mean, so let's, before we dive into how Bitcoin can help out by producing an alternative revenue stream by using waste gas or undervalued gas to mine Bitcoin, in your perspective, what are, what are like the, the biggest pain points throughout this, this value add chain from, from upstream to midstream, and then eventually to market, right? You're taking these gas and oil minerals from the upstream and you're basically attempting to add value to that molecule and, and make it so it can actually be delivered to market and used uh, by people looking to, to run uh, uh, heat in their homes to, Sorry, to man, cool their homes. Talking so I like, didn't have my headphones in, I apologize. Oh, it's okay. Um, Man, I'm sorry. The it wasn't plugged in. Just don't let it happen again, okay? You edit these, or is this just going to be how it is in the show? No, I'll edit this. Um, okay, cool, man. I apologize. At nine forty. Yeah, no, it would be like too much, too much awkward silence. Uh, but you were just like talking. I could hear, it, and I was like, "Shit, I didn't plug my headphones in." I, I, I thought, headphones. yeah, I was trying to uh, <laughs> keep the so show going in. while. Right. This is how Techn podcasts go. People don't notice it because you just—it looks so polished and nice at the end. But this is like every podcast I ever do is just some ridiculous <laughs> shit. You know, technical difficulties. Yeah, that's uh, there's like an enormous amount of blooper reels that can be created through all this. What I was trying to do though, or get at, and we're at ten minutes and thirty-five seconds, so I'll pick up here before the technical difficulties uh, arose. Let's focus in on your niche, like adding value to, to these molecules on their way to market from upstream to midstream to uh, people's houses. Like, what is that process like? Like, how are you actually adding value to, to these minerals and getting, getting as much value as possible for either the mineral rights owners or, or the producers taking yeah. it out of the ground and delivering it? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are involved, obviously, on the gas. I will talk about gas because I think that's what GAM is uh, primarily focused on in terms of using the energy source for mining the Bitcoin. And so you've got this just gigantic network of pipelines, compression, processing plants, treating, fractionation to pull the NGLs out. Um, and so you can kind of imagine that along that long chain of... Uh, of things that it takes to actually get these products to where we use them in the form of energy for, for example, our house or for the petrochemicals that we need uh, to make all the products that we all use every day. There's a lot of different pieces to that. Right. And as a producer, you know, you've got a bunch of different ways that you can sell your product. Some guys can sell your product right at the wellhead. Uh, so similar to if GAM were to hook up a, uh, a miner to the wellhead and they buy the product right there, that's a wellhead sales. Other guys can gather the product. We, we, you just froze up there for, um, for about 15 seconds. So going from like compression. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay. So all the way from compression to a processing plant to after you get into a processing plant, you can take it downstream into a pipeline. 
You can take it from a pipeline down to the end users. You could sell it all the way to a retail marketing. So I could literally take a molecule of gas from a wellhead and our company in theory uh, could take it all the way to the burner tip at someone's house and sell it that way. And so it doesn't always make sense to go that far, what we call downstream, but in between there, there's lots of different layers and there's lots of different ways to sell the product. And as a producer, these guys, a lot of times what we found focus on drilling completions, you know, just getting the product out of the ground, leasing the acreage uh, to get the wells drilled. And then there's this weird thing that happens when it comes time to actually make the money. We found that, you know, the big companies, yes, there's a focus on that, but at a lot of companies in this business, it's, it's sort of a marginalized portion of, of the business. And by, by that, I mean that basically guys just aren't paying enough, either they're not paying enough attention to it, or they just don't have the expertise uh, on staff. And so you go and you talk to two or three pipeline companies or midstream companies, they give you a couple offers and you look at maybe the fees and you say, yeah, this one, this guy's got the lowest fees. So I'll take that. I'll take that offer when really like, if you peeled back the layers of the onion, there's so many different value drivers. There's things like how much fuel is getting burned uh, with that gas in the field, you know, what kind of recoveries are you going to get on your NGLs? Basically, like how much of the product are they going to give back to you or to pay you for? You know, what, you know, where are the fees being charged? Are they being charged at the wellhead? Are they being charged at the inlet of the plant? I mean, it's just this very, this big black box. And these contracts, a lot of times on the midstream side, can be 30 or 40 or 50, 60 pages long. And just to weed through all of it, it's a very complicated and nuanced part of the business. And I think a lot of it is, it's not that high tech. It's like relationship driven and it's knowing it's knowing that space and then it's relationship driven. It's knowing all the different players, knowing all the different markets and being able to take the knowledge that I was able to gain that the people at our company was able, were able to gain at the bigger companies and learning how to do it at scale and helping the smaller guys make sure that they're not losing value. And it just takes a little bit, right? Like even if you can make tense, and this is why the gas to hash calculator is so powerful, right? Cause I'm sitting here like making an entire career on knife fighting for 10 cents uh, an MMBTU, right? Where it's like, this is a critical aspect to what I do. And if I can save someone 10 cents or 20 or 30 cents, I'm like a hero. And then I, Marty Bent comes in and says, you can give me like 25, $30 in MCF for my gas. And I'm just like, like, it's like wait, wait, what? Um, but basically it's complicated to explain on this, but effectively there's just a lot of different areas where these midstream companies and these marketers can extract value uh, from producers. And I think that having that expertise and helping people navigate that is something that we've been able to create a business out of doing and it's, and it's tangible. And so that's powerful, right? Like if you're somebody that's trying to, you know, just charge somebody money for something, it's like, okay, well, what value can you bring? But if you can point to that 10 cents or that 20 cents or that $25 in MCF that you guys can point to, uh, then, then that's powerful. And, uh, and that's what we've been able to basically build a business around doing. Yeah. No, it's incredible finding these niches and, understanding that whole value chain, right? Cause that's what, uh, one thing that I've learned being more ingratiated with the, the oil and gas industry over the last two years, two and a half years, specifically, like I, I came to GAM f from the Bitcoin perspective. Like I'm the in-house Bitcoin expert that has all the connections in the Bitcoin space and uh, understands how everything works at the mining pool level and, and what is actually happening at a, at a technical perspective. And, my, the extent of my knowledge of the oil and gas industry, obviously, 
up to this point, up to that point in my life before I got to GAM was working at a managed futures fund where we traded crude oil and that gas. And so I knew high level macro drivers of, of short-term price movements, but uh, that's, that's about it. And really getting to know the, the intricacies of the different parts of the industry, how the, the industry operates differently in different parts of the country has been just an incredible learning experience. Like again, we learned a hard lesson last year after, after the crash in, in uh, April and May about acreage dedication, had no idea like a, that a pipeline could come in and just say, hey, we, we need that gas you're getting. Like uh, it's, not, it's not the operators, it's ours. So give it to us. It was right. oh. Um, and so ha- like learning all these, the way the stuff operates and is, is fascinating. It's much more complex than, than one would assume uh, pulling oil and gas out of the, the earth and getting it to market is there's, there's incredible industry that is built up of many uh, different power players. Right. Sure. And it's uh we're hoping that we can simplify it. And that's like one, another reason I wanted to bring you on too, is this whole idea of vertical integration from a Bitcoin mining perspective. And then uh, the, the efficiencies that Bitcoin mining can provide to sort of reduce the misallocation of capital that arguably has led to too many wells being drilled, um, too much gas being flared, uh, yada, yada, yada. Um, right. I'm just rambling here, but. No, it's good. I, you know, do what's interesting is the integration part. And so I've thought about a, a lot about this lately and I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts around the different things you talk about. And I'm really fascinated with first, it was like a fascination around uh, Bitcoin and just kind of the, the mechanics of it and understanding, you know, what the mining really is. And I'm by no means any expert on that. Um, but I, I kind of pride myself on like, I have this weird, like if I get like focused on something, I just sort of like, I just go like hardcore at it and try to learn it. And I've learned enough, I think, to know at least surface level what's going on. And then what gets really interesting is then to think about the dynamics of the mining, because I'm starting to think about, okay, how's this mining going to pan out, right? Like I always want to try to think, you know, kind of game theory it and say, okay, if this is true, uh, if, you know, everything Marty says on his podcast is true, then where does the future of, uh, of this, what does the future of this world look like? And it starts to get uh, fairly rapidly into a place where supply becomes critical for energy, right? I mean, it's like, you, you think about it and you look at the competitive dynamic, dynamics among mining and what, how people are going to differentiate, uh, how they're going to differentiate each other. And what I think is interesting is the different, I mean, the mining space is just like, really, I, I barely scratched. I mean, I've only been researching for like a couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm just like fascinated with the different strategies that people are using. Uh, and you're hearing rumors. I mean, the on grid stuff, the off grid stuff, you know, renewables, I mean, there's just so much there. And I don't, and I think because it's so new at the scale that we're thinking about that it's going that it's just it's like this uncharted territory. And but I think if you can boil it down, and you've said this, and I've just, uh, you know, rip this off from you. I think I tweeted it or something, but I'm just basically repeating what you said about how Bitcoin is basically energy. And it's, so if that's true and it's just converting energy, then you start to follow this, uh, this trail of thought that says, okay, well then you need to control the energy. And then it's, then it's like, well, what's the best way to do that? 
And there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can be an upstream producer who's going to produce, um, produce their own natural gas and you can use that. And if you can control that, then you've got an obvious source there. You could be a midstream company that has aggregated a lot of natural gas into a pipeline system and maybe has the right to purchase that gas. You know, it's not every midstream company can purchase the product. Some midstream companies, they just have to move it from point A to point B and they really have no contractual rights uh, to purchase it. Other midstream companies have, you know, purchase elements in their contract to where they actually have the right to purchase it. Or they, some of them get what we call percentage of proceeds where they get a percentage of the product as their payment. And that was popular uh, during the 2000s when prices were just going up and up and up every midstream really wanted what we called a POP contract, which was they kept a proportion of the product to sell on their own. So we called it like legacy product, like they got their own legacy gas. And so you think about these different ways to capture the energy, uh, the producing it is the, is the producer is interesting. You know, you're getting right to the source, you're buying the resource in the ground, but then you have to be a producer. Being a producer is not the easiest thing in the world. I don't know if you've looked at the returns that producers have made. Uh, historically, it's a tough business. I mean, it's like, that, that's the other parallel is like producing Bitcoin and looking at producing oil and gas. I mean, the worlds we live in are just like, I mean, Bitcoin's probably more volatile than oil, but oil is pretty volatile. I mean, we've seen it hit like negative 30 something dollars. Uh, and we've seen gas at $1,200 in MMBTU this in the last 12 months. We've seen that. Like this is just a crazy thing to even say. So this idea of investing a ton of money and investing a ton of effort, raising capital, securing assets, deploying the capital, and then just seeing the price completely drop and fall out. And you just, it, it just game over. It didn't matter how smart you were. It didn't matter how well you planned. You just are, it's like, this is what it is. Like I drilled all these wells and now the price of oil is $25. So that aspect, that parallel between Bitcoin mining uh, is really interesting. And so if you think about the integration, it's like, okay, well, you got a lot of risk owning upstream. You've got drilling risk. You've got execution risk. Uh, you've got a, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world uh, to drill and complete wells. Guys out there are really good at it. But then, so maybe you say, okay, maybe I wedge myself in the middle, look at midstream. Maybe I can own a midstream system and, and mine based off of that. So um, I don't know the answer. I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, but I think the answer is there's a lot of different ways to play it. And it's a really fun and interesting uh, problem to try to figure out. And what I asked like Tom the other day, I was like, what's the energy consumption going to look like? Like, do you guys have it plotted out? Like, do you know, like, can you plot it out for me and show me a demand curve that I can overlay and put in a, in a deck for investors and say, okay, here it is. Like, you know, Bitcoin's at a million dollars of Bitcoin. The year is 2022. I'm just joking. The year's 2028 or 20. 40, whatever it is uh, in, in the year in the Bitcoins, a million dollars of Bitcoin, where are we at? Like, what does it take to keep the network going? Uh, and those types of thoughts and questions are really interesting to me because that, that helps me plan better uh, in terms of what I think would be the best strategy to, to integrate this stuff and, and to grow it into the future and be a, be a dominant player because I think things are going to change pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's a few things to say. I think the demand, like off the bat, just answer the last question you just posed, like I think it's going to increase significantly. Um, it's actually interesting up to this point in Bitcoin's life cycle, the first 12 years, uh, mining, investing in mining operations has actually been much maligned throughout like the VC community. They're like, don't do it, just buy Bitcoin. Right. Mining's like too risky, too much execution risk. Like uh, you, you got to play the price volatility. It's not worth it. But 
like you said, I think we're going to hit an inflection point, a tipping point in which, especially as all these corporations, all, um, all these high net worth individuals, these billionaires start taking Bitcoins off the market and putting them in long-term cold storage, like at some point in the next decade, like the, the, the only way to get access to, to a significant amount of Bitcoin is going to have some ex- is going to be having some exposure to mining. And so like we, we believe at GAM that all these exchanges that are popular right now are going to have to buy stakes and mining companies if they actually want to continue being exchanges. Because if you actually think about it, exchanges are naturally short Bitcoin because they're constantly right. selling to, to their customers. Um, and, and once the free flow to Bitcoin dries up because all these uh, corporations and rich individuals and average Joes are, are buying a Bitcoin and using it as a savings vehicle, like the, the, the only way to access Bitcoin is going to be uh, getting access to the miners who are producing and distributing newly mined and, um, and uh, Bitcoin that, that comes in the form of transaction fees and the block reward. Um, and so I think that's going to drive, obviously, demand up for mining and it's just going to force mining into, like, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of John Seth in the Bitcoin industry likes to to uh, call miners uh, energy pirates. Yeah. So they're out looking for the cheapest source of energy possible. And it's, we believe again, like you mentioned the whole on-grid versus off-grid debate. We're making a strategic decision to go off-grid because we think that's going to, that's going to give us the best opportunity to, to scale up and mine uh, for as long as possible. Um, Cause we don't have to uh, compete with, people using grids um, people need to get energy um, the load balancing stuff is interesting uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how far that can scale but another thing you mentioned like bitcoin is the currency of energy right like and this was an like this was an idea this was like in our pitch deck too this is an idea that's been around for over a century or almost exactly a century henry ford wrote an op-ed in the new york tribune December 1920, I believe, in which he said the U.S. should should transition from a gold-backed currency to uh, a currency backed by energy, by, by one kilowatt hour. Like you should have a one kilowatt hour unit of of currency, and use that to to basically show proof of work and uh, level level out the playing field of the currency markets on a global scale. Fast forward. 60 years, I believe, Buckminster Fuller, who's famous for the quote, you don't, you don't change an existing, existing system from the inside, you, you create a whole new system that, that shifts the paradigm. Uh, he's famous for that quote, but he also had the idea that you should transition to a currency backed by energy. It would create world peace and wars and really level the playing field um, because energy is abundant all over the world. Uh, and not until Bitcoin was invented could that actually be implemented because it's Bitcoin's proof of work consensus mechanism with a difficulty adjustment allows you to take these scarce energy resources from under the ground and turn them into scarce digital currency in the form of Bitcoin above ground and prove that you did work and expended that energy by producing hashes that allow you to to, uh, add blocks of transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain. So when it comes to the energy industry in general, but I think the oil and gas industry uh, very acutely so, there is a budding symbiotic relationship between the Bitcoin mining industry and the oil and gas industry because they both make each other more resilient. Um, 
And that's one thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is like the theory that we've had is using these gas assets that are usually wasted or undervalued to mine Bitcoin. Like, how does this affect the opportunity cost in the field? Like, how does it, how would you expect it to change decisions around pipeline construction, flare stacks, LNG units, selling to a midstream provider? Like, how right. does it shift that paradigm in your mind? Well, I think it, it's going to get down to like what the total energy usage is. You know, like what I talked about this curve around demand for the energy, because I think it right now, like at the scale that your guys' miners are at, you know, with the limited information that I know, it's kind of around this sort of 150 MCF, uh, call it a couple hundred MCF to maybe 100 MCF, I guess it depends on the, uh, the, the power gen needs. But, you know, that is relatively small. Uh, to, you know, to put, put it into perspective, you could drill a single, you know, Haynesville or Utica well, and it could come on at some of these easily 30 million a day, uh, potentially some more 50, 60, 70 million. There's wells that come on 60 million a day, humongous wells. And so to the extent that Bitcoin can, you know, establish itself as an energy need that is, you know, at, at a level that, you know, can tip, can move the needle, I guess is basically where I'm going because it, it, where it's at today, you could set a ton of miners. I mean, I was, we were doing some math today thinking about it. And it's like, I could set a ton of these miners uh, at a centralized facility. And I think it would be very good. I mean, I love the flare gas mining aspect. The ESG stuff is, is brilliant. I think that's really a great tailwind for you guys. And, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but you know, long-term I, I worry about will flared gas even exist? I mean, just with the regulatory stuff going on, I mean, companies hate it, right? I mean, you could be a pro, you could be part of the solving why it would go away. But, but if you think about long-term, the energy needs and will it really affect and disrupt, for example, midstream or some of these larger infrastructure projects, I think you have to extrapolate out what those energy needs are going to be. And certainly if guys can say, for example, I mean, cause there's an element of uh, materiality that comes with, with the bigger energy players, right? Like, so if you're a small guy and I don't know if this is like a good term or not, but like a mom and pop or somebody that's a small, either like family owned company or a small private company that's owned by individuals, then if you could sell 150 MCF a day and make uh, the prices that you could get converting it into Bitcoin, that that's powerful. And really it's powerful even at big companies, but you got to remember these big companies, the scale is hard to wrap your head around. These are gigantic companies with humongous reserves and their production streams are just, they're just, they're really large. And so if you can say, Hey, it's not going to be 150 MCF, it's going to be 150 million cubic feet a day. And I need to set a train or a plant, uh, a mining state, you know, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to set a mining complex. that's going to do 150 million or 200 million a day. And we're going to show that we need that, uh, you know, in the next year and we got to set that down. And then by the way, over the next 10 years, we're going to set a 200 million a day mining station every other year, or every two, three years. And if it becomes that type of energy usage, then I think you do disrupt uh, the midstream space and the pipeline space. And then also the strategy of how these EMPs think about what they're doing and, and how they develop their reserves. Because, you know, people say we're awash in all these, in all this natural gas reserves, and we are at the right price. So if you look at the Northeast and some of these areas, I mean, it 
$2 gas, a lot of these reserves, they just don't make sense to produce. I mean, you can produce them, you're going to produce them because you've got debt, you got a service, or because maybe your marginal cost of production, you've already got production online. So you're going to continue to produce similar to what you guys have talked around. Uh, we had a little bit of a conversation around uh, Bitcoin price to deploy capital versus Bitcoin price to just marginally produce. And it's the same with the produce. I mean, a lot of the stuff you guys are talking about is very similar to producing a oil and gas well, when I think about it. So uh, a long-winded way of answering your question, I think it just depends. I think it depends on the amount of energy usage, and which is probably going to depend on the adoption of Bitcoin and how that grows. And But if it gets to the levels I was just talking about where you're, where you're consuming material amounts of gas and you're getting, a, it doesn't even have to be 20 or $30 in MCF. It just needs to be more than what you could sell it for to an end user. I mean, probably because of where Bitcoin is in the niche that it's in now, probably needs to be at those higher kind of eye popping numbers to get people interested. But long-term, it just needs to be more than what you could get moving it through a midstream system and selling it to an end user. Uh, and if you can do that, you can show demonstrably that it's repeatable and that the energy use is going to be there and that it's at scale. Then I think you'll see real transformative things happen, but, um, but I don't have a good grip on when that would be. And uh, maybe you could, maybe you could tell me if you, if you have any thoughts on when we could get there, if that's something that's going to happen. I think it's going to take time. Yeah, the biggest bottleneck here is simply just having enough of the computers needed to to build out the infrastructure necessary to to consume that much energy. We've done back of the network, back of the network, back of the napkin math yeah. at GAM, uh, just uh, using EIA reported uh, figures of flaring. Again, this is reported figures of flaring globally, and uh, Reed, our head engineer, uh, taking gen set conversion rates into consideration uh basically estimated that there's about 60 gigawatts of consumable gas that could be used to mine bitcoin uh, and this was this was calculated in september of last year uh the network hash rate was probably about like 15 percent lower than it is today but still pretty significant it, if we were to cap and consume all that gas again this is reported not even under like doesn't even count the unreported flaring figures uh, that would that would increase the the computing power on the Bitcoin network by 7.35 times, uh, and we we couldn't do that if we wanted to right away, just due to the lack of computers that exist. So I think it's going to be a 10 15 year transition or build out, uh, maybe even longer, maybe even 20 years. Uh, but I think it's going to happen, um, and we think. Like producers that get in earlier are going to benefit significantly more than the ones that are that are laggards in this particular space. But yeah, it's going to take time. Uh, it's going to take. Oh, there's like a huge learning curve. There's there's a lot to be learned. Like we're definitely one of the few people in the world doing what we're doing at Great American Mining, but we are in no way experts. We're we're still learning as we go. There's there's stuff that pops up every day that then. Uh, highlights a pain point or, or something we need to think about. And so I, I think we're in the very early stages of what's going on. I think we can reach those scales. And this is something Tom and I talk about at GAM and something that he has articulated to me. And like, it is a cool visualization. I don't know um, if we can confirm that in the market, but like putting a few turbines at a midstream provider, basically sucking the flare from the field via the midstream provider because you can consume a lot of the gas at the midstream and, and increase capacity of the pipeline so they don't have to flare and they can just funnel that gas into the pipeline 
Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to get the gas from the flare stacks into the pipe. So they would have to have pipe at the wells, but maybe the economics can make sense to lay the pipeline to the wells if they had the juice at the tailgate of the plant is kind of maybe what you're saying. So like if you had the miners at the plant, that boost in economics could justify the capital required to lay that extra however many miles to get to the wellhead. So instead of flaring, you know, you could say, cause I mean, at some point it's just uneconomic to lay a pipeline to certain areas. You just can't, there's a fee yeah. that needs to be charged and that fee is too high to justify doing it. And in a lot of these areas like the Bakken, you know, the gas stream is negative. Uh, a lot of guys had to commit to what we call take or pay or minimum volume commitments to say, Hey, you know, basically they got to pay the pipeline back is the easiest way to explain it. And so they maybe had them lay to the, to the wells to get the gas and then gas prices fell. And so now they're upside down. So some guys are even losing money. They're actually paying to move the gas uh, instead of getting paid. So if the midstream had some economics that uh, allowed them to then lay that extra mile of pipe or however many miles to get to the wellhead, uh, maybe that could capture more of the flared gas. You know, what, what's, but what's interesting though, is that like, if you can get the flared gas into a gen, I mean, it's inefficient, I think, to do it at every single wellhead long-term. I mean, it, it makes sense today at the scale that you guys are at. And it's, it's interesting for a lot of reasons because it, one of the main interesting reasons is that it cuts out a ton of capital, right? Like if you can just get it at the wellhead, then you are now saving tens of millions, if not like it could be more than that. It could be a hundred plus million dollars. If you didn't have to build a plant and pipelines, you're saving a lot of money just picking up at the wellhead. But from a scaling of the mining business, do you want to have hundreds of these things spread across multiple counties and multiple States or thousands of these things at some point? I mean, maybe like it could probably work, but my gut tells me you'd rather just be like, have just a giant complex, just pulling them off of a single source you know, I mean, I, I don't know, again, but at that point, you got to have that pipeline that gets it to, there's going to be a fee, right? If you pull the gas off of a midstream, that's the thing is that if you're pulling the gas off of a midstream facility, there's a bunch of capital between you and the wellhead now, and that capital has to be paid for via fees on the gas. So, but if you can get a really high price for the gas, mining it as Bitcoin, maybe that doesn't matter because you're getting such a high price, but just things to think about in terms of the implications of where you put it uh upstream midstream downstream where you locate the miners it's just will be it, it the economics are different from the producer and then there's also just more capital you're laying in between then right if you got to lay a pipeline all the way to these miners that's another that's millions of additional dollars in the in the in the capital stack that it takes to mine that same that same bitcoin agreed yeah there's a few thoughts here so we're pretty comfortable having our 20-foot shipping containers spread out um is because we built software to, that allows us to control everything remotely. We have a second by second, or I should say two minute by two minute until often we're pinging data. Uh, we have a two minute by two minute view of exactly what's going on with the miners, with the heat in the container and with the gen sets, as well as our PDUs that, that take the energy from the gen sets and distributes it to the, to the miners. Um, so we're comfortable with that. And, and there's another reason why we think that it actually may be advantageous long-term, maybe not for us. Well, we are profit maximalists. So we, I think it'll just be a, just as profitable. Actually, no, like turbines would actually reduce the, the all-in power uh, production cost if, if you can buy them and scale up an operation that big. But I think it'll be a combination of both containers in the field, 
turbines at a midstream provider with excess gas. The containers going to areas where pipeline isn't made. This actually benefits us as a company uh, in the Bitcoin network uh, in two ways. Uh, as a company, uh, ideally, we distribute those containers across state borders and across uh, producer stakeholders. So you distribute risk jurisdictionally, and then from a stakeholder perspective, uh, you're you're not sort of centrally uh, connected to to one producer, one state. Uh, or one midstream provider, one state. Then from a Bitcoin network perspective, it would be in the best interest of the network to have these 20 foot shipping containers spread out all throughout the field because it's much harder to go container to container and unplug miners compared to going to a midstream provider, knocking on the door and telling somebody to, to unplug the miners on their property. So from a distributed system perspective, literal physical distribution of uh, the, the machines producing blocks, it's much more advantageous for, for the Bitcoin network to be uh, more modular in that regard. But I, I do think it will be a combination of the two at scale. Those are good points. I didn't think about the, I mean, there is a diversification aspect to, you know, I mean, this is an argument for any like midstream or infrastructure investment, right? If you're a midstream guy and you have one, what we call anchor tenant that is say like a single producer that's, that's, you know, underpinning your entire investment, that's riskier than having a system that is backed by num numer num you know, tons of producers or multiple producers. And that's probably even less riskier if you have like a downstream pipeline, if you own an interstate pipe, now it's being fed by hundreds or thousands of producers into a single pipeline. And so depending on how you where you're at, there's different paradigms of risk and how you view that risk. I didn't think about the element of like, if someone were to go and say, I guess you're saying from like a regulatory standpoint, if someone was like, Hey, go turn this miner off, like in this future world where maybe like Bitcoin's controversial and people are saying, uh, you got to stop mining here or states are trying to regulate it, things like that. Yeah, exactly. That's why, again, another benefit of off-grid is it's harder to identify that Venezuela specifically the, the Venezuelan government identified Bitcoin miners uh, by their energy footprint on the grid and went and confiscated their operations and started mining on behalf of the Maduro regime. So, yeah. so the yeah the the on grid footprint or the and the midstream footprint in, in the context of our conversation would be an attack vector for for a state agent if they ever wanted to like crack down. Instead, yeah. having these shipping containers. Yeah, um, that are pretty innocuous um, from from a drone perspective. Um, You're already but, thinking that far ahead. Like, how do we hide these things? How do we camouflage these things? In the exactly. Well, it's, uh, welcome to Bitcoin. It's the, uh, I think great. you should just. I think the, an easy way to solve that, at least in the near term, would be just like operate in Oklahoma, Texas, uh, red states. I think right. you're very hard time having federal people confiscate your property in my state. Uh, it could happen, uh, and I but I doubt the state would. Oklahoma and these states that are used to energy extraction, uh, the red states, I think they would welcome this stuff. I, I, I can only, I mean, I think that they're not there yet in terms of understanding it, but I would bet you that if it becomes more mainstream, uh, those are the types of playgrounds you probably want to play in because they will probably not only welcome it, they'll probably encourage you to do it uh, via ease of regulatory structures and incentives. Um, that's just my guess. I, like when Kentucky, I was talking to Kentucky's Thomas, a first mover. Yeah. What's that? 
Kentucky is going to be a first mover in that regard. They're, they're writing legislation to incentivize Bitcoin miners to come to Kentucky. Yeah. Like when I first talked to Tom, I was just like, I'm scared of Colorado. Like I'm scared of, you know, some of these States. Like I just, I just don't want to, the, the logic attached to the things that they're doing in the energy space, it's just not there. Right. I mean, like I'm all for being safer, cleaner, more sustainable, uh, better for the community. Uh, you know, but if you look at what the new federal ban on leasing, which is effectively a ban on, on fracking wells, I mean, they say it's not, but it's very hard. I mean, people have gone out and permitted, uh, wells already on these federal lands, but they're doing things like they're not allowing people to get right away for pipelines. So there's an opportunity for you guys. Um, that's a free one. But you should talk to some of these guys because they may not be able to get a pipe to their pad because there's no there's a moratorium on permitting and that right away falls into that. And so if they're in New Mexico in the Permian, they've already got the well permitted. They thought we were safe. They may not be. And then the reason why I say it's non-logical is because, look, it's it's not going to stop the energy from being produced. It'll just be produced in a place that's way less environmental friendly than the U.S. It will also that money is directly going to fund schools and the communities and these things in New Mexico. Uh, so it's just, I, I worry about, you know, Mexico, Colorado, these bluer States, it's just, they're traditionally not a great place. You it's just another layer of risk. There's already so much risk that we got to deal with. We mentioned it earlier, execution, commodity, Bitcoin price, all these things. Just what other layer do you want to just layer on this overarching, like regulatory risk at the state level on top of all those other risks that we just talked about? It's just, it's tough, man. It is It's very tiresome. And that's like, so that's, sort of what drove me to Bitcoin again, working at a managed futures fund, not only were we trading commodities where we index commodity trading advisors that traded commodities like crude oil, and natural gas, but they also traded currency markets. And that's sort of when I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit holes, having to, I was an analyst. I wrote all of our commentaries and had right. to basically explain why our fund performed uh, and why the markets moved the way they did. And so that led to me like having to follow central bank announcements, the Federal Reserve, ECB, BOJ, PBOC, all these central banks. And it really highlighted like how ineffective they were. And they would say they were very effective, but they would always hit set projections, never hit them, make outlandish comments that never really came to fruition in the future. And I was learning about Bitcoin and the juxtaposition of this group of a very small amount of individuals, very few individuals globally making decisions that affect 8 billion people. Sure. It, it highlighted the fact that you can't micromanage complex systems like a monetary system or an energy market. Like it doesn't make sense. You just literally disrupt the whole equilibrium of these markets, which is why in the monetary aspect, in the monetary perspective like we've fucked up the dollar we fucked up the money because we have very few individuals trying to micromanage a complex system which is a pricing system that right allows individuals to make economic decisions and individuals arguably have not been able to make smart economic decisions because these people are micromanaging a complex system and skewing the the uh the like how that system acts like very very aggressively alternatively with or similarly with the energy markets particularly what biden's doing like so we've been talking to, to wyoming uh, people in wyoming a lot because of this federal ban on fracking on federal lands like this is 
going to destroy their economy and their like like i've heard people utter the word like severe crisis because they're not going to be able to produce enough revenue to feed their their state funds that fund all their education and and what, like other important uh aspects of, of social life in wyoming so it's just uh, it's, it pisses me off right like and it's it's a lot of larping too a lot of people talking about shit they don't understand like, like you that. said like it's going to push energy production to to places where they don't give a fuck like like china is the biggest the biggest polluter in the world and they're not part of the paris accord like they're not right. making an honest effort to, to fix things and we're just going to push production over there like they're using coal power to produce the solar panels that are getting subsidized to bring back here to the united states like it doesn't make any sense to me but i might get canceled for for having this 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 wrong thought on on a podcast yeah man you can get canceled for anything these days don't worry about it yeah. just 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 stating facts about the energy industry people will try to so it's it just is what it is that's like one of the risks of even doing public podcasts and talking about things talking about nuanced topics nuance is uh is something that is it's difficult right now um especially if it's just if it's a nuanced thing that goes against the narrative what's interesting like in clubhouse i don't go too much on the rabbit hole but like a lot of these oil and gas guys i know a bunch of guys that just been like lurking in all the like climate rooms and like all these rooms and just going on and trying to argue with people and talk to them about this stuff and it's very difficult uh that wouldn't be me i just i i try to play a little bit in the middle just because i think sometimes you can pe keep people off guard but i clearly have my biases or you can you can people are less on guard if you try to play a little bit more in the middle and just kind of see a little bit of their point and say, okay, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about the fact that all these, you know, solar panels are coming from China? Have you thought about the fact that they're not going to be, you know, adhering to any of this climate stuff until 2030, 2040, they're not even going to try to start. They're building a new coal coal powered fire plant or coal powered power plant every like other week. It's like a hundred, 200 in the next or a hundred in the next year. It's like, if you do the math, that's like two a week or something crazy. And, you have these conversations and it, sometimes it, I don't know if it really goes anywhere, but what's been interesting about the Bitcoin space that I didn't fully appreciate or realize was this, uh, was this like parallel that we have where oil and gas people and Bitcoin people are both like attacked by the kind of the environmentalist uh, movement and because of the energy usage and just sort of, there's like this weird alliance there around uh, facing some of the same backlash it's a symbiotic relationship, buddy. Yeah, very yeah. much. But what's crazy is that, like, if you look at, like, how much energy usage is, so I was, like, listening to this the other day, and I thought this would be a good one for you, if you could find somebody to talk about it on your podcast, would be like, to talk about, like, how much energy usage with, like, consumer electronics, like, cell phones. Like, if you just look at, like, iPhones and laptops and just, like, convenience electronics, not even, like, uh, heating your house or keeping yourself warm, like convenience electronics, TVs, like just the stuff that we just use to have fun like for funsies. It's like over 10% of the entire human energy usage, right? But no one's sitting there being like, this Stop is ridiculous. Don't games. charge your iPhone. You shouldn't be on your iPhone. You should only charge it once every three days. Like no one's saying that, right? Because everybody's on it blogging about environmental stuff, right? They're yeah. using that energy. I love the environment. Tweet sent from my iPhone made in China. Right. With all these petroleum products. It's, uh, it's, it's exhausting. It's tiresome, but like uh, my favorite was some fucking LARPer. He was the dude who in like 2013, he, he went on a like infamous tweet storm walking through an airport. Like I just cried walking through the airport, seeing how many people 
or flying planes. I want to make an effort to, to never fly again. And on top of that, you know what? I'm going to get a vasectomy and never have kids. Fast forward. The real thing. I'll send you the link after this. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes too. So everybody can listen to this loser. What about the guy yesterday? I think his name was like Jack Danger. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The only reason I know his name is because his name is Jack Danger, which is like the ultimate alpha name. And this dude is like the ultimate beta. Uh, just from what I, from like the one second that I clicked on his profile, I was like, you should not have the name Jack Danger. I was like, everything on your profile is like, he's like carrying the flag for beta. Jake, uh, Jake Danger. I think it was Jack or Jake Danger. He, Jake him. Danger, maybe. First. I don't know, something Danger. But I just was like, I read this tweet thing that he did about Bitcoin. He's just like railing on it and I'm about the energy consumption. And I'm like, dude, you're on like a computer typing this. It's like, we're using energy all the time. Like I did this episode uh, with Alex Epstein. I don't know if you ever watched any of his stuff. He came on, he agreed to come on my pod and it was, he's just a great, like he's got all these great points. And we just talked about like the paradox around, is there anything else that's more of a paradox than people that are using the energy, but then at the same time, just like railing on it all the time about how terrible it is. It's just like this bizarre, like you can like get the virtue of yeah, talking just- bad about it, but then at the same time, just use it just like constantly. It's our fiat society. Nobody wants to do hard work. Everybody wants to appeal to to feelings and and uh, seem like they're a good person. Nobody actually wants to act. Nobody wants to take extreme ownership. Nobody wants to actually do something. Want to LARP from their couch? It's fucking disgusting. It's it's like again, like that Jake Danger dude. Has no idea what he's talking about. The dude who walked to the airport and cried said he was going to get a vasectomy eight years ago. He's got two kids now and he was LARPing about Bitcoin's energy production uh, or, cons- or conversion uh, a week ago. And meanwhile, like a-, a few weeks ago, he's like tweeting from a hot tub and somebody looked up the-, the energy consumption of a hot tub, which is an extreme luxury good. And it's like on par with like, like it's it consumes more energy than like 10, 10 countries combined in the world. So it's like, all right, you're s- tweeting about energy consumption from a hot tub, which is completely unnecessary. Right. You know, the whole moralization of energy consumption is just a complete, uh, it's, it, it's a bad framing of the conversation. It completely, it's, com- it's completely communistic, right? Like it's, it's a communist line of thinking uh, that some energy consumption is more virtuous than, than other types of, energy consumption the whole energy consumption debate around bitcoin is usually centered around the fact that these people don't think bitcoin provides any value which is demonstrably false i mean you can right i would love for these people to go to nigeria and tell the women of the nsars movement that that had to turn to bitcoin when the nigerian central bank and government shut off access to their bank accounts that bitcoin doesn't provide value to them i would love for these people to go to venezuela to cancer patients who weren't able to pay for their 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 medical care uh, in bolivars because it hyperinflated and they had family members sending bitcoin home because they couldn't send us dollars because right. of sanctions tell them it doesn't have value these people don't think yeah, getting man. angry here exactly um no but like this whole subject around just the energy usage and uh like just people wanting to focus on the things that they want to focus on like this moral standpoint uh, while they're still using all this energy. And it's just like, it's just so, I mean, every, like the people that do the private planes, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio and these people. And he's got like, have you seen his Twitter? 
have you seen like his picture he's got like a like a tuxedo on and it's like him standing at like a podium at like some environmental conference thing and it like says like his bio is like environmentalist or whatever like that's like his thing and i'm like no you're not like you just fly around in a plane all the time like on yachts just like consuming more energy than like thousands of normal people and so there's right. like this 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 paradox that we live in that i kind of am like I try not to think too much about it, but it's why like, I can't get like too worked up about the attacks. It's like, you want to get worked up about the attacks, but at the same time, I'm like, it's just so dumb. It's like how, like, I can't get worked up about it because it's just so dumb that like, why am I even, I'll just keep producing the energy. You just keep using right. it. And I'll just, I'll just like, you know, sh shrug it off whenever I get uh, people throwing shade. And it's like a lot of people too, like people that are, you know, like, friends, family, people that, you know, live in different parts of the country that don't, that aren't in the energy space. And you talk to people and it gets like real political and weird, like really quickly when you start talking about energy stuff. And I just have noticed with Bitcoin, this seems to be like a growing narrative uh, that you're seeing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, luckily for Bitcoiners, we're good at memeing. Uh, this is actually something Tom and I talk about. Like I'm a meme lord. Gas I, like I don't, don't want to sound disrespectful here, but you guys uh, did. I like just have done it anonymously for years. Help. I've been coming out. Right. And I came out recently. Been doing more public memes, but I had a lot of like. I just started it. My my new Twitter is like twenty uh, January twenty twenty one. It was just last month. I just decided to like scrap my twelve year old anon account uh, that I don't even want to mention because someone could probably find it. But I just have been like in the meme game secretly. But it's like, what did Elon say? Like, who controls the memes, controls the world, controls the universe or whatever? Was that his quote or did he just steal that from something? Yes, Bitcoiner. I think he re-architected another, another, uh, another quote, inserted meme. Um, and uh, I think it Bitcoiners stuff, are, are the right? kings. I mean, like, right you now. can just make a funny I mean, meme about... To help environment to your meme and it's like industry. it has some truth to it they're kind of like eh, i hate this but there's some truth here and it makes me smile maybe i don't know it's it's pretty hostile that's been the weird thing about clubhouse getting on all these climate rooms they're crazy like you get on like an oil and gas room and it's like 100 people on like a really big one right and bitcoin's even bigger hundreds of people thousands probably on some of these bitcoin uh, rooms but like the environmental like climate rooms are massive you have thousands of people in there it is not a friendly place if you're trying to go in there and talk about these types of topics that we're just talking right now. Uh, very, like, very. So I made the argument the other day. I went to the. Uh, these it's, it's, I guess it's kind of public. I was very the story, but I was in because I don't know that anyone ever records Clubhouse. But I was on like the San Francisco Bay uh, YPE. So it's Young Professionals in Energy right? Which is like this group that I'm not even in there. I, I think I maybe was in it for like a year in my early twenties in Oklahoma city, but uh, mainly just to go to the social hours or whatever. But there's one in San Francisco and they were throwing like a clubhouse chat. And, uh, and I got on there and they were like, if you're, even if you're not from San Francisco, like we just want anyone in energy to get up here. And there's just a lot of like the climate talk. And it was very, just this acute, like they were, so this one guy just starts going and he's like a V, this guy, I don't know the guy, he was like a VC, he says he's, you know, who knows if people are real with their bios, but uh, it was like VC sustainability, I invest in, you know, all the stuff on his bio and he's just go, railing on Texas in the storm and saying that 
this is proof. This is proof that climate change, like had we done renewables 10 years earlier and like just saying all this stuff. And I'm just like, this is not like, this is a weather event, you know? I mean, it's just like, and these people are just, everybody's getting real worked up and like, yeah. And like, there's just this big echo chamber. And like, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this and raised my hand on the clubhouse thing and got in there. And I was like pretty civil. Like it didn't get like hostile at all, but I was just like, you know, like, there's a lot of blame to go around on this thing. And I was like, uh, you know, I just like, tried to like talk reasonable and sensible. And I think the interesting thing about clubhouse is that it is hard to, it's easier to tweet somebody something about energy and act like you don't know, you know, just to make some, you see these like mic drop tweets, right? Like if you were to tweet something about energy, uh, maybe I saw one today or recently that you said something back to somebody, or maybe it was somebody else in Bitcoin, but people like do these mic drop tweets, right? It's like some outrageous thing that they say that wants to get a bunch of outrage and they just, they hit send and you know how hard it, it's like, not like these are nuanced topics that you have to articulate. Right. And so you can't just like to send one tweet back to them to, and half the time you're just like, I'm not even going to respond to this, but like in clubhouse, you get somebody on there that's saying a bunch of stuff that's just like completely ridiculous and you very level headed and like get on there and you're like, well, actually, uh, by the way, and you start talking about it. Like people get quiet, like pretty quick. Like, yeah. Some people might get hostile and want to argue with you, but my experience so far has been, if you're, if you know what you're talking about in the energy space and you get on clubhouse and start just kind of dropping knowledge, people like the pushback is not nearly as bad as like Twitter where everybody's anonymous and they just start throwing stuff at you. Greenwash, dude. Yeah. Don't ever let a VC try to try to carbon splain things to you. Ever. Greenwash. Oh my gosh. That that was that that one dude who wanted to get a vasectomy, but ended up having two children. Uh he, he threw that word out. Stop greenwashing. There's another guy from Norway threw greenwashing at me the other day as well. It's like, ah, oh, you're using you're using the the excuses that the, the oil and gas industry uses when I said like like how much coal goes into the, the production and recycling solar solar panels you want to produce? It's like stop greenwashing, stop there greenwashing. Girl, there was this dirty, girl that dirty. went off the other day. Energy consumer. Uh, she's like has this. Uh, I wish I could remember her podcast. Max, I'm getting she all had worked this up. Epic mic but, on Clubhouse. She's like this. Her podcast is like the green something. She's all and it's like not just like environmentalists. It's like everything like holistic you know medicine she's like medicine like she's just like green feel good her whole thing it's like the green something and uh she got on there and just was like ripping in these environmentalist people just being like you guys greenwash everything we're not paying attention to the impacts on the environment that these electric vehicles and like all this stuff and i mean she and she's like does a podcast it's like looks like i don't know how popular it is she's got hundreds of episodes i mean it looks like official and uh, she just like let these people have it. Nobody said anything. They're like, like, those are really good points. Like we need to work better to address uh, that stuff. And I was just like, man, this girl is awesome. Uh, I tried to reach out to her to see if she would come on my show and her back. But, but there are people that I think in this space that are kind of acknowledging it, uh, the purists. But I think a lot of people just, just they don't want to hear the, the alternative narrative. No, they don't. They're too, too emotionally invested in their belief that they're morally superior. And the, like this is this is actually I've had a couple episodes of Tales from the Crypt about this. Uh, my other podcast, right. uh, the so the the fiat money like this all comes back to we need to fix the money because it's just created like the fucking up the money has created again. It's messed up the pricing mechanism of everything. 
one of which being the university system, the, the fact that anybody can go get a, a student loan that will be that'll be provided by the government and has led um, a lot more people to go to university on top of university getting extremely more expensive. And so it's created uh, what is called elite overproduction. People go to college, they take out these loans, these loans are getting higher and higher every year as the universities raise prices because they know the government's going to give out these loans. Uh, and you have these people going to university, graduating, getting degrees, looking at that degree, saying, I have $100,000 worth of debt. My degree is worth that. Like I went through, checked all the boxes, got my diploma. I am supposed to be financially rewarded for this. And what you find is you have people who think they're supposed to be elite. They, they went to college thinking they're going to get a higher right. salary because they checked off all those boxes. And what they're finding is they're stuck at these lower rungs of, of corporate America. Uh, and they're not making as much money as they thought they were going to go to, because that's what they were told. You go to college, you get a high salary, increases over time. Simply not happening. So you have an overproduction of this class of people, and they can't separate themselves from the working class financially. And so they have to separate themselves from a moral perspective. They develop this perceived moral superiority that, that, that manifests itself in uh, in in certain ways, one of which is virtue signaling about the well, yeah, I mean, a lot of that's being not really knowing anything about the the complex on. And I mean, I think to your mechanisms point, of uh, energy to, markets. What you guys always say is fix the money, fix the problem, take away the cheap debt. I mean, there's no reason that somebody with zero income uh, and really no viable means to pay it back can take out these massive six figure loans uh, to go get you know a graduate an undergraduate degree in some type of, you know, bachelor of arts and then a master's in the same thing. And then they, now they've got all this debt and then they've studied these things that aren't really uh, all that relevant to the workforce. And then they're angry and they want to, you know, they've learned all these things and now they're, I mean, it's just, it's just this bad, it's a bad recipe. And I've told people, people that ask me for advice, like around college, do like a mentorship program at my college. And I get, I like to talk to people when they're like freshmen, because if you can, if you have time, they're a junior, they're kind of on this path already or so, or senior. And it's like, Oh, like you're, you know, you majored in psychology and you got a master's in psychology. And now you finding out that those jobs aren't really here and you can't make a ton of money. And I'm picking on that. I mean, we need psychologists, obviously I'm not trying to be overly critical of one degree, but point is, is that people get down these paths and you know, you just, it's just not a lot of opportunity, but it gets back to the money, right? And this is kind of to tie it into the Bitcoin and just fixing the money. And it's like the government's giving free money uh, for college and backing these loans and it's causing a bubble. And that bubble's in the price of tuition at universities. I mean, even when I was there, my marketing professor, marketing uh, was like, hey, by the way, I just wanted to give a plug for anybody that ever wants to be a, you know, thought about being a professor. We've got an associate marketing a professor job you just have to have a phd and it pays 160,000 like starting out associate professor right and this is like this is like 10 15 however many years ago as that was 10 years over 10 years ago uh so who knows what it pays now but the reason why they're making that is because they printed all this money or given all this free money i guess not printed it but loaned it um so back to the bitcoin thing and it, and, it, and how it relates to energy markets it's the same i mean you know look energy prices this is why i think to try to tie this all back together because we're going down some rabbit holes. But I think that where I would worry around the model for Bitcoin mining is the, the cost of energy. I think it's going up. Um, 
Look at all the money they're printing. And if you look at Bitcoin and the price, how much it's gone up, you don't think like oil's, oil, they pay for oil with dollars, you know, right? You pay with, you pay for gas with dollars. So it's going to take a lot more of those dollars potentially to buy that same MBTU or that same barrel in this future world. So I think the price of energy uh, could be going up. Now, again, I, there's a lot of things at, at play there and I'm not going to make a prediction on when, but it makes sense, right? Yeah, no, it does. That's why we're focused on this off-grid stuff on the stranded energy to, to consume that where, where it doesn't have the ability to get to market at those prices. And, you know, and the tie back to the environmental thing too, like we're reducing on environmentalists, environmentalists in their current form, but I would consider myself an environmentalist. I surf, I, I love the ocean. I grew up on the coast my whole life. I'm very passionate about keeping like my local beach as clean as possible. I'm that freak who's on the beach picking up after other assholes that, that litter on the beach. Like you can be an environmentalist in this world, but be, be logical as well. That's actually why I love being uh, in the Bitcoin mining industry and specifically what we're doing at Great American Mining is because we're helping society be more efficient with the, the molecules that are being pulled out of the ground. Like seeing those, seeing these flares like I have on my green screen behind me, literally viscerally pisses me off because it's wasted economic potential is being literally lit on fire set on the and sent to the atmosphere like the stuff's going to be produced anyway we should be as efficient as possible that's the thing that really grinds my gears about the particular conversation around energy consumption and, and the environment and climate change is nobody talks about being more efficient uh with with what we're pulling out of the ground right now it's always throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just completely uh transitioning to to a green tech energy production world yeah, which for sure literally see me instead of mine revert to the dark ages if we did that people don't understand that oh yeah good uh no i mean like i so this is like a thing that i always like yeah, I can focus see on a lot. Like good if too. you ever listen to my ramblings on Clubhouse or these other platforms, some probably on my podcast too, is that I'm really focused on why not use existing technology to solve the problems that we have, and because we can, right? We have natural gas. Like if you want to look at, uh, and I know you guys probably don't want this because you want cheap energy uh, for Bitcoin mining, but natural gas, uh, we could like solve all these problems, and that's what like where it breaks down for me, right? It's like okay and like alex epstein even argued with me about this because he was like well just use coal like he's just very much like pure markets like whatever's the cheapest he's like no natural gas we got tons of coal it's easy you can store it right on site just pile it up and i'm like well you know natural gas is cleaner i'm talking my book a little bit right I, I deal a lot with natural gas but it's cleaner we have a ton of it by the way we've already cut our emissions a bunch like more than any other country like we're beating what we've other countries have tried to you know, say they're going to do in these Paris Accords and other things. The U.S. is doing amazing because we've decommissioned all these coal plants. We've switched to natural gas. Had we listened to Boone Pickens and Aubrey McClendon, we would have switched a bunch of our cars over to natural gas and started with the big trucks. Uh, shout out to Amazon. They just converted over a thousand semis over to natural gas. It is way cleaner from an emissions standpoint. We have tons of it. It makes economic sense. We already have the infrastructure. And by the way, if you look at what it will, how it will reduce our uh, the how we'll meet the climate goals and reduce the emissions it gets us like a huge proportion of the way there now yeah hundreds of years from now maybe it doesn't like if you believe the models where we keep you know growing in population but it buys us a lot of time i mean it buys us 
at a minimum, no one can argue it buys us decades. I think it buys us from some of the stuff I've read hundreds of years in terms of reducing our carbon footprint by just using technology we have today. We don't have to invent anything. We don't have to invent any like new solar panels or batteries or anything. Just like we got it already. But guess what? It's hydrocarbon based and they're not going to do it. Like it's not going to happen because it's hydrocarbons. And so it's frustrating to me, um, but that doesn't mean that Bitcoin can't be the benefactor of that, right? Using that clean energy. <laughs> yeah. Max, don't be so defeatist. We're gonna we're gonna meme we're gonna meme our way to success in, in bringing the, these realities into fruition. Um, it's it, it's it's time to have adult conversations for strong men to stand up and, and fight for logic in a world that is completely illogical. Right? Man, it sounded really and profound. I was like, camped up. It's you were like, we gotta ah, fight for this. Gonna we're gonna meme. Something we're gonna like meme it into. Too. I know the uh, no, but going back to, oh, we're gonna meme it into the world, and don't worry about us at Great American Mining. Again, we're we're even like we we are energy pirates. We're Bitcoin miners. We're gonna go find that cheap energy. Like the best, like the best thing we could do at Great American Mining is produce is provide a market for these stranded nat gas resources to figure out an equilibrium for for that particular energy market. If the price ever gets too high and reduces our margins to such a point where it doesn't make sense to mine with natural gas. That's the beauty of having our modular containers as well. We'll pick up those containers and move them to another source of energy. Yeah. Like I believe that Bitcoin mining is going to incentivize the production of more nuclear facilities. Like, because that is the next, uh, the, the, the pinnacle of cheap energy production in the world, right? Is, is nuclear and, and literally the Bitcoin mining industry will incentivize the construction of more nuclear facilities throughout the planet because they are going to demand cheaper energy. There's going to be some wily Bitcoin miner entrepreneur out there that is going to convince either a government or a private company or right. do it themselves and start building thorium reactors or more uranium-based nuclear reactors as well. Like it's just natural incentives of not just, it's not just big network I mean, drives humans is, to, to be more efficient out, and uh, seek energy, out it's, cheap it's energy. Nuclear. I mean, there's just no other way. Like we're not going to be able to, I read this book called like powering the future. I think is what it's called. It's written by a Stanford uh, PhD who wrote this book. I think it's a little dated. I think it was like, I'm trying to find it here on audible powering the future by Robert Laughlin. I have no, I'd never heard of this guy before. It was like a recommendation on audible. And it was a fairly short listen. I think it was like uh, like eight hours or something, which is short for Audible. But listen to it. And it's like 2011, 2012, so it's a little dated. But he kind of just like game theories out basically like all the different energy sources and is like, here's hydrocarbons. And he makes like a great case for why, by the way, they're going to be continued to use for a long time. Like, you know, he says a couple hundred years in this book. And then he talks about renewables. And he talks about all the roadblocks they're going to hit. Uh, with the physical limitations around the physics behind, you know, storage and batteries. And he just, and he, and he warns uh, that like, they're going to, you know, you go down that path too far without hedging your bets, then you could end up in a, like, like if you're going through a maze and you find yourself at a dead end, like that's not a good option. You're gonna have to backtrack. And so he worries that like, you could go down a path with renewables where we focus so much on it and we hit up against some of these physical limitations and we just realize like, this just isn't going to work. We put so many eggs in this basket, but then ultimately to spoil the book, it ends on nuclear. And the reality is, you know, if you believe a thousand years, 2000, however many thousand years in the future for humanity, which I hope is we make it there. I mean, I think we will, but hopefully 
uh, then you have to basically, you're going to have to move to nuclear. I mean, hydrocarbons are a finite resource. Nuclear poses a lot of like security risks. And he talks about it a bunch in this book. You know, you get to the point where you're, everybody's on nuclear power. That's a lot of, it's uh, a lot of like radioactive material just kind of like floating around on the gray market, right? So you, there'll be a big security yeah. aspect to it. But if they can solve that, then it's kind of the long-term, only the viable really thing um, beyond our generation and our kids' generation, but, but long-term. Yeah, I think Bitcoin will expedite this because again, it fixes the money and it it, it fixes the, the massive misallocation of capital that exists in the world because the, the Fed is able to to print money, give it to their primary dealer banks, and then they can go misallocate that money at will. And the consequences of that capital misallocation don't exist because they're going to get fucking bailed out when they fuck it up. Like it, it, it is completely destroyed the, the again the pricing mechanism of the world and, and the feedback loop that is supposed to exist when you take risk and, and the fed is trying to de-risk the world and by doing that they're making the world considerably more fragile like i think money is the root of all these problems we're discussing right now because it, it, again it, it misprices everything when, when you have it centrally controlled like it is now bitcoin fixes that and then from there the nature of the way Bitcoin works and the nature of sound monetary systems will bring logic and adult conversations back to the world so we can, so we can fix this bitch. Let's be optimistic. Let's end on an optimistic note here, Max. We are very resourceful animals, humans. We innovate. We produce. We're fucking speaking to each other. I'm in New Jersey. You're in you Oklahoma. To talk about things. You have these mics, uh, these cameras. Like, we can figure way, it out. I think it's important. just need to get these idiots out energy. of the way. Like, we have to be realistic. And I think that the big thing for me and what I love what you guys are doing and why I think it is the, there's an investment case behind what you're doing that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It has to do with conserving energy and not put, just flaring gas into the, into the atmosphere. I mean, there's an ESG story behind what you're doing that even if it wasn't Bitcoin, even if it was uh, servers for whatever, some other type of you know, tech that you were using in those containers, that was capturing that flare gas. That, there's a business case for that because it's making the environment better by not flaring that gas. And so I think that it's solutions like that, whether it's Bitcoin uh, or whatever it may be, it is this idea that let's get better, make it cleaner, make it more sustainable. And let's focus on goals that are, uh, let's make it goal-driven, right? Like let's look at the end result and say, here's where we wanna get to. Let's talk about the realistic ways we can get there instead of a lot of virtue signaling and uh, arm waving around uh stuff that just doesn't make a lot of sense but that sounds good right and so that's where i would want to end it and that's where i'm focused on in the oil and gas industry we're trying to be more sustainable uh, one because it's the right thing to do and two because i think that that's where things are going in terms of if you can do the same thing you're already doing today and make it cleaner and make it better that's just a win-win for everybody and you should be able to attract uh attract investment dollars and get people excited about that stuff but you have to be able to talk in a nuanced way and energy is a weirdly political topic you know it was strange going through this last election cycle feeling like kind of personally attacked about what you do you're like i'm people ask me about how i think about things i'm like it's just kind of weird because i tune in and they're like attacking what i do so if you can get away from that type of narrative like the attack narrative and the outrage culture and have a nuanced conversation about this stuff i think we can get to a better place in the future where we're more efficient and uh and doing the right thing instead of just arguing and being less efficient
Thanks for having me, man. This is fun. This is exciting. I, I, uh, Max. I love the Bitcoin stuff. Thank you for joining on stuff. me. On, I'm excited on about what you guys are doing uh, from the operational level, but also from the media level. I'm new to the media stuff and it's fun. And I like meeting other content creators and it's exciting to make content with other content creators. So I really do appreciate you having me on, Marty. <laughs> Well, keep crushing it. Thank you for coming on. This is a new podcast. It's hard to get guests on new podcasts. So I really appreciate you taking some time and um, helping me leverage your, your reputation. In the, in the yeah. So the website's talked about energy for the podcast. Spread uh, the message. What we're doing Ancova, again. Um, where can we find out more about you? And uh, you can just hit me up at one of those places. They've got places where you can get on and send me a note or you can direct message me on any of my social media stuff, Max underscore Gagliardi at Twitter. Uh, and that's pretty much it. All right. That's all we got today. Enjoy the rest of your day, wherever you're listening to this. And we need strong men to stand up, logic to prevail. Don't let the virtue signalers scare you from doing that.